1: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to New Books in Archaeology. My name is Robert Broadway, host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Eric Klein about his book, 1177 B.C., The Year Civilization Collapsed. Eric is a professor of classics and anthropology at the George Washington University, director of the Capital Archaeological Institute, co-director of the Megiddo Expedition, and the Tel Capri Project and co-editor of the Bulletin of the American School of Oriental Research. He's the author or editor of 16 books and about 100 papers, a National Geographic explorer, a Fulbright scholar, who holds degrees from Dartmouth, Yale, and the University of Pennsylvania. Most importantly, he's an active field archaeologist with 30 seasons of excavation and survey experience. Available in hardback and on September 29th in paperback, 1177 B.C., the year civilization collapsed, is outstanding, even superb. I read it uh, cover to cover in a few days, set it down, and and the next night I began reading it again. Um, Be forewarned, the book is somewhat of a gateway drug. Um, If you begin reading it, um, you will be buying more of Eric's book and about 20 other books on the uh, Aegean Bronze Age. I'm not kidding. Uh, Probably just listening to this interview uh, is going to be dangerous to your book
0: budget. Hello, Eric. Thank you for joining me. <laughs> Hello, and thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on.
1: Okay, well, uh, let me see if I've got this straight. Uh, Eleven seventy-seven BC. I- if I've got this right, Alexander the Great died in in three twenty-three BC, and, and but we're going to be talking about a time well before that, the Peloponnesian War between the the Athenians. Um, uh, and and the the Spartans began in in 431 BC, but we're going to go way back further than that. Uh, Thermopylae, the, the the battle between King Leonidas, the 300 Spartans, about 7,000 other guys that didn't make the movie, King Xerxes, the Persians, all of that. Uh, that happened at 480, but we're going even way before that. Uh, you know, as far as Homer was concerned, the events of the book that that, that we're going to be talking about today occurred during the age of the Olympians, during the time of Zeus and Apollo and Poseidon and Aphrodite. I mean, We're talking about a really ancient age, Ajax, Achilles, Perseus, Odysseus. But all of this is, is uh, what we're going to be talking about actually happened. It's an archeo- to an archaeological certainty. Uh, the events uh, surrounding the 1177 uh, events, it was just a time of extraordinary civilizations. Tell us about them.
0: Well, it it absolutely is amazing. I I personally think it's the most interesting period in in all of history. If I were able to be transported via a time machine to any era in ancient history, it would be this one, um, late Bronze Age, say 1700 to 1200 BC, and then the events that take place in and around 1177 uh, the problem, of course, is I'm sure I wouldn't survive more than 24, 48 hours if I did get transported back then. But uh, it's fun to imagine. It's an absolutely fascinating period with lots and lots of interesting characters moving on and off the uh, world stage. So, you know, in in some, uh, I was happy to, to write this book because it's uh, so near and dear to my heart. Well, a, a mysterious
1: group of people is, is introduced in the first page of the book. Um, who were those people and, and why are they important to history?
0: Now, these people are known as the Sea Peoples. That's that's what we call them, and Sea as in uh, SEA, like the Mediterranean Sea. Um, they're important because they've long been blamed for the collapse, for the catastrophe, the end at the uh, of the late Bronze Age, uh, already... Back in the the mid-1800s, some of the French Egyptologists, like Gaston Maspero, uh, were reading an inscription on the walls that Pharaoh Ramses III had left uh, on his mortuary temple in Egypt. And in it, he talks about these groups. Uh, He actually names them, uh, four or five groups of people that he says came sweeping across The Mediterranean ending civilizations left and right, the Mycenaeans, Minoans, Hittites. He names a number of them, uh, including the Cypriots and the Hittites. Uh, And then he says that he defeated them, but he was the only one. And that inscription is dated to the 11th year of his reign, sorry, to the 8th year of his reign, which is 1177 BC, hence the title of the book. So these Sea Peoples, which, by the way, is our modern name for them, Ramses just gives them the individual names, uh, they've long been blamed for the end of the late Bronze Age. I'm not convinced that they're actually totally responsible. I think they definitely are part of the problem, uh, but I think in some ways they're as much the victims as the oppressors. So these Sea Peoples are important to history because they either are part of, or the sole reason, for why all of the late Bronze Age civilizations uh, in the Mediterranean and uh, and in the Aegean came crashing down uh, in less than a century. Mm -hmm. Now,
1: the history of of the archaeology, the the history of archaeologists trying to determine what happened, um uh, you were saying that, that, that the first inscription was was uh found and deciphered uh, in the eighteen hundreds. Uh but I'm always interested in that. Tell us about the uh the uh the scientific effort uh, in this century, in the last century and and even in the century before that, uh to, to try to determine what happened during the late Bronze Age.
0: Yeah, well the the effort to figure out what happened, as you said, has been ongoing since since the 1800s. Uh, and there's any number of explanations that have been given. It's only recently, in the last couple of decades, that we've been able to apply any sort of real kind of science to it. But when I was uh, an undergraduate in college back in the late 70s, early 80s, and then when I was a graduate student throughout the 80s, uh, the, the various possibilities that had always been set forth, um, we would go through them in class. I was asked them on exams. I wrote papers about them. And uh, they were the usual type of things that, that one might associate with the collapse of civilizations. Uh, was it uh, a drought? Was it a famine? Was it invaders? Was it um, an earthquake? Was it a tidal wave? Did the economics collapse, uh, things like that. And there were any number of uh, articles and books that were published uh, in favor of one solution or another. Um, uh, In fact, uh, in 1993, Robert Drews came out with a book called The End of the Late Bronze Age, in which he suggested that basically the invention of what we would today call infantry uh, were able to overwhelm the chariot armies of the Late Bronze Age, and that that is what uh, brought the Late Bronze Age to an end. Now, I disagree with that. I don't think that, that infantry is what uh, happened. Uh, I think, you know, it's, again, maybe part of what's going on. But the interesting thing about Druze's book is it was one of the first attempts where somebody actually went chapter by chapter looking at the various uh, suggestions and uh, dismissing most of them. So one chapter is on earthquakes, one chapter is on, you know, economics, things like that. Um, and so that was also where where I was coming from in, in my book, was looking at the various uh, suggestions that have been made and uh, diving deeper and exploring the evidence both for and against. So if somebody says that earthquakes are the major reason for the end of the late Bronze Age, I tried to look at the archaeology, look at what sites were destroyed and whether or not they were destroyed by earthquakes. And so I went through each of those possibilities. And actually, in the end, I concluded that um, most of the possibilities were viable. And in fact, I think they each contributed to the end of the Bronze Age. So by the end of the book, not to you know, spoil the surprise or anything, but I do conclude that it's a perfect storm and that any one of the explanations is not enough. But if you have several of them acting in concert, like earthquakes and invaders and drought and famine, then that's what gets everything to reach the tipping point and go down. That uh, if you had an earthquake, you could survive it. If you had a drought, you could survive it. If you had invaders, you might be able to survive it. But what if you have all at once? So we've long known that something dramatic occurred, but we've never quite been able to put our finger on what it was that caused that. And even my suggestions are simply just that, suggestions. We, we have not proven anything one way or another, but I thought the general public would be interested in knowing uh, the current state of our knowledge. And so that's, uh, in the end, what I set out in the book.
1: To help the reader understand the, you know, the absolute sheer magnitude of what happened, you you, you made an interesting choice as an author. In, in the first chapter, you you, you go back three hundred years uh, from eleven seventy seven, and you actually start the book there. Three thousand, th- pardon me, three hundred years further back in time to, to fourteen seventy seven BC. Um, go ahead and give us the outline there and uh, of. Uh, the Eastern Aegean at 1477 B.C., and, and then let's move forward just like we did uh, as as if we were reading the book.
0: Yeah, well, what what happened was um, when Rob Tempio, Princeton University Press, came to me and, and asked if I would write a book about the collapse, I said, um, sure, I'm you know, happy to do that. It's an interesting topic, but I'm actually just as interested in what collapsed as in how or why it collapsed. Mm -hmm. So um, I proposed to him that if I began and ended the book talking about the collapse and what might have been the reasons for it, just as we walked through, um, but I spent the middle part of the book explaining what it was that collapsed. That I thought, first of all, we put the collapse into context but also it would allow me to highlight what I think is one of the most interesting ages in, in world history, as I've said. So the idea in the book is that in the, uh, the prologue uh, and, and the beginning of the book, I introduce the collapse and this notion of the Sea Peoples and then kind of ask rhetorically, were they really responsible? And then say, in order to understand what happened in 1177, we really want to start 300 years earlier, You know, much as if you want to really understand the United States today, you really have to go back a couple of hundred years to the founding fathers and and all of that. So I I take the reader back uh, into a period near the beginning of the late Bronze Age. We're actually already into it at that point. But the years just after 1500 BC uh, is when we get uh, really what I call the G eight of the the ancient uh, Mediterranean and Aegean interacting because by the 15th century we have most of the major players on the scene. We've got the Hittites in Turkey. We've got um, uh, the Cypriots in what is Cyprus. We've got Minoans and Mycenaeans in Greece and Crete. We have, let's see, the Canaanites on what is now coastal Syria, Lebanon, Israel. We've got the Assyrians and Babylonians in Mesopotamia, today modern Iraq. And, of course, we've got the New Kingdom Egyptians down in Egypt. And these are all interacting. They are um, globalized, is what I call them in the book. Some people have taken issue with my uh, use of the term globalization. But that's the best way I can explain it. we can demonstrate uh, using social network analysis that this region is what's called a small world at that time. Namely, um, if you don't know somebody, you at least know someone who knows them. You're never more than two or three steps away from everyone. And so when you have a small world, they are essentially globalized, even though it's just in that region. I mean, they're not in interacting on a daily basis with China or Japan or Russia or anything. But from, say, Italy in the west to uh, Afghanistan in the east and from at least Turkey in the north down to Egypt in the south, these people are in communication and interacting. They're, They're trading. They're sending gold, tin, lapis lazuli, silver, they're sending raw materials around, they're sending finished products around. They're even, you know, uh, arranging dynastic marriages. And and we know this because in addition to the actual objects that come out of the archaeology, we've also got written text from that time. We have the Amarna letters uh, in Egypt from about 1350 BC. We have also, even earlier, the Mari tablets from the site of Mari, on the Euphrates that date back to the 18th century. So we know a lot about the people at that time. We know that they are um, more similar to us than we might expect. They had wonderful marriages and nasty divorces. They had diplomatic embassies and economic embargoes. So um, in highlighting them at that time, by starting in the 15th century, I was able to walk through what was going on. So one chapter, uh, we look at the, you know, the 14th century. One chapter, we look at the 13th century. Uh, then we end up looking at what's happening in the 12th century as things start to collapse. And then the last chapter in the epilogue, we come back to uh, the theories about why this might have happened and um, why the Golden Age came to an end. So basically, we... We start with the sea peoples. we go back three hundred years. I walk you through the centuries, and then I end with the the sea peoples in amongst the other possibilities and uh, try to wrap it all up with why did this come to an end. It also allowed me to tell some of my favorite stories about that period, but uh, uh, i'll I'll stop for now yeah. well the,
1: the The book introduces a a The the concept of of palace economies, Uh, and and that's almost a, well, that is a term of art, an art, uh, palace economy. Describe what a palace economy is. What what type of economic system is that?
0: Well, the basic idea is that the palace is going to be controlling most of the functions within uh, a given economy. That is, you've got uh, Mycenaean palaces in in Greece, we've got the Minoan palaces in Crete. we we know, of course, the Egyptians are, are palatial-based. Um, and, and that means that the king, or or kings, uh, as the case may be, if they're separate ones, are, are running the show, and that um, most of the economic functions are, are centralized. It's a centralized bureaucracy. It's a centralized economy. It would be, uh, in many ways, very familiar to listeners today, uh, that's not to say that they're running everything. There are uh, instances where the religious personnel, for example, are running uh, their own show out of the temples. Uh, you know, For example, in Egypt, we have um, a long time, uh, almost a, a rivalry between the palace and the temples, such that by the time of Akhenaten in the 14th century, the so-called heretic pharaoh, when he outlawed, the worship of all other gods and goddesses in Egypt, except for Atsin, that was actually a political and economic move as much as it was religious. Because when he forbade the, uh, the worship of the gods, he also was able then to close down the temples and take all of their treasuries uh, and uh, strip them, strip the priests of their power. So the palatial economy is central, but um, it's not the only game in town. Uh, In fact, we have, we know, uh, or we can guesstimate that there are independent merchants as well, some of whom may or may not have worked for the palace either full-time or partially. I guess that then depends on how independent you want to consider them. Uh, And then you've got, of course, the lower classes, the craftsmen, the artisans, even all the way down to the, the farmers and the peasants, um, many of whom would have worked for or on behalf of the palace, or had given you know part of their proceeds, and others of whom may have been completely independent. But it does look like the palace is running the show for the most part uh, in these various civilizations at this time. And so when something affects the palace and it goes down, when the the 1% disappear, that's when we get uh, everything going downhill. And we can see that at the end of the Late Bronze Age, that is in fact what happens. The centralized economy collapses, the centralized bureaucracy goes away, and even though people survive, the level of civilization uh, goes way downhill, such that we enter into what's usually called the world's first dark age immediately after this Late Bronze Age collapse. And it's really and due to large part to the uh, collapse of the palatial economy
1: you you make an interesting choice as an author and and, and you talked you touched on it about uh, uh, how you wanted to uh, to relate your favorite stories and, and you really do you embark on dozens of these you know interesting, compelling they end up being utterly fascinating tangents, one right after another, all through the book, but somehow. You, you manage to weave them perfectly back into the fabric of the book, so that uh, by the time when you first start, when you first take us off on one of these stories, uh, as a reader, you're wondering, "Now, why are we why are we going down this road?" But by the end of the story, you realize, "I, you really couldn't understand the, you, you really couldn't understand what you were trying to say without going down that tangent," and it uh, it, it just makes the book so wonderful. Uh, and, and when I was reading it. Uh, It was just how did you manage it? I mean, you couldn't have outlined something like that. How how did you just free associate? How did that come about?
0: (laughs) Well, I'm glad to hear you say all that because um, that's exactly what I wanted a reader to come away with. I mean, you get it. That's great to hear. Um, What I did was when I sat down and and I I said, um, if I were, you know, when I sat down and I said, if I were writing about the 14th century, what do I think is necessary to include? And so that that was where I I did somewhat outline it, where I said, oh, I've got to talk about X and I have to talk about Y and I can't leave out Z. How can I not talk about that? Um, Each of them are indeed tangents, but each of them do uh, contribute. They are each threads that are part of the larger story. So, uh, for instance, when I tell the story of um, the, the list, the Aegean list in Egypt, which may mention the names, uh, of places like Mycenae and Knossos over in Greece and Crete. Um, yeah, it looks like a tangent, except at the end of the story, I'm able to kind of triumphantly say, see, these people are in contact. Uh, and there's absolutely no question that there were voyages back and forth. Um, I will say that uh, a number of people don't seem to get that. Some of the comments on Amazon, for example, they're like, oh, he jumps around and it's chronologically, it doesn't work, he doesn't go chronologically, to which I say, wait, were you reading the book that I wrote? Because it's it's all chronological. It goes down chronologically. The chapters are numbered chronologically. But I understand what I do at times is I put in flashbacks. I mean, I wrote this um, as kind of a play in three or four acts, uh, but it's almost a movie in a way. And in movies, you know, you frequently have flashbacks. And so I would say things like, you know, we're talking here about the Minoans on Crete, but wait, um, if, in case you don't know about them, let me jump back and tell you about the discovery of the Minoans. And then I tell the story of Sir Arthur Evans and his excavations at Knossos. Um, Same thing with Egypt. At one point I jump back and talk about the arrival of the Hyksos and one of my favorite stories where two kings go to war over the bellowing of 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 hippos. You know, one king says the roar of your hippopotamus is keeping me up at night and if you don't stop it I'm going to kill you. Well, he was 400 miles away. There's no way he could have heard it and yet um, and indeed the other king, we found his uh, skeleton, and his head is bashed in by a <laughs> battle axe. So it may well be that they did go to war over the bellowing of a hippo. But So the, the common thread they've all got is that these are stories that I find interesting and that I find relevant to really understanding what's going on in the late Bronze Age. And to my mind, there's no reason why history has to be dull and dry Uh, There are fascinating stories out there, and my goal was to tell those stories well uh, and to engage the reader much as, you know, I would engage my son or daughter uh, or my wife around the dinner table, telling them stories. And my rule of thumb, uh, again here, is is very simple. If I find something boring, then the reader is going to find it boring. So um, either, you know, I tell it well or I don't tell it at all but there are enough stories from the late Bronze Age that I was able to basically tell all my favorite stories as well as to get in everything that I thought was important. I mean, you really can't talk about the 13th century without touching on things like the Trojan War and the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt. Even if neither of those have been archaeologically proven, you can't write a book that touches on that period without mentioning them. And so that's what I did. Now, and I also did realize there are lots of names of people, of places, of events, and of dates and all that. So I included a glossary at the back so you can tell, you know, Amenhotep III from Ahiawa, for example, or Tuthalia from Tutmosis III. So I would say, to, you know, to the, the possible reader there, don't let all the names and dates throw you. You can look at the glossary at the back, but you can also read it um, without really trying to keep them straight because it's the general overall uh, impression that, that you're really aiming for to understand really what we lost when all of this collapsed. And, and I do think it was catastrophe on, um, well, I actually think it was greater a greater catastrophe than when the Roman Empire collapsed, and that was fifteen hundred years later, you know in the fifth century a d so um, it was an absolute calamity when the late bronze Age came to an end, and by telling the stories, I wanted to drive that point home in an interesting way
1: and and it works um, the the book really is is for everybody not just people who are interested in 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 archaeology i i think um, in the and we'll talk about it as the interview goes on at, at the the last few questions really about about how important this book is maybe to uh to understanding uh events that are that are occurring today uh, chapter two moves forward about a hundred years and and it brings the egyptians into focus and and you, you get a very strong sense throughout the book that that, that the Egyptians are are major major players in, in, in the Late Bronze Age uh, they're, uh, they, they seem to, uh, to to be involved in quite a bit. Tell us about uh, their role in, in all of this.
0: Right, well what we've got when we're when we're in uh, basically the 14th century which is what uh, chapter two is about uh, at that time in Egypt, we're we're in the New Kingdom. We're in specifically the 18th Dynasty, uh, which has really started back in about 1500 BC, or a little bit uh, a little bit later or earlier, depending on your chronology. Um, so we've already been inter- we've already been looking at Egypt for almost a century by this point. But here in the 14th century, uh, Egypt is uh, one of the it, Great powers, if not the great power. They're interacting with the Hittites up in Turkey, with the king in Cyprus. Uh, They're interacting with the Matani, who are up in North Syria, major power there. Uh, Interacting as well with the Assyrians and the Babylonians over in Mesopotamia. And uh, it is quite clear that Egypt is supplying most of the, um, the gold, for the known world, for these these powers, and as a result, it's operating from a position of strength. Now, the other thing to keep in mind, though, is uh, if we go back just a little bit to the time of Tutmosis III, one of the 18th Dynasty kings who is living and ruling uh, sometime between 1500 and 1450 BC, he has been busy conquering up in the region of Canaan. Uh, what we would call Israel, uh, Lebanon, and Syria today, uh, and has brought all of that region under Egyptian control. So Egypt's already got an empire by the 14th century BC, and uh, one of our major guys, I've mentioned him already, Amenhotep III, who is the father of Akhenaten, the heretic pharaoh, between the two of them, Egypt is operating not just from a position of strength because of its military conquest, but also because of its diplomatic efforts. So Amenhotep uh, seems to marry the daughters of most of these kings. Uh, he's got a, a couple um, princesses from, uh, boy, Mitanni, Assyria, Babylon. Uh, he, and what we're doing, he's not just marrying the princesses they're probably cementing diplomatic treaties that he is signing with those powers. So Egypt, I think, um, though it nominally is one of of many, say, eight powers at the time, Egypt is at the forefront, I would say. They're definitely the one that everybody is looking to at this time. It's only the rising power of the Hittites that is going to um, cause any sort of major consternation to the Egyptians at this time. So that's their, their role in all of this, is they are probably the major player, the major actor on the scene during the 14th century B.C.
1: You've already mentioned them, but, but Chapter 2 introduces the Ar- Armana, or perhaps I'm not pronouncing that right. Uh, no, that's right, that's right, the Armana archives. Yeah, Tell us what those are.
0: The Amarna letters are, are one of the most interesting groups of um, written sources. Uh, written source we've got from antiquity. Uh, they are very simply the royal correspondence that Amenhotep III and his son Akhenaten had with these um, other major kings, as well as with uh, lesser, what we would call vassal kings that are under their thumb in Canaan. It's a group of um, almost. 400 letters, for the most part, that were found in 1887 in Egypt by um, supposedly a peasant woman. The story goes that she was out uh, collecting um, either dirt for fertilizer or something similar to that uh, at a a, a modern area called Amarna, uh, which is halfway between Cairo and Luxor in Egypt along the, the Nile River. And it turns out that Amarna uh, is actually the site of ancient Akhetaten, which is the capital city of Akhenaten. He built it when he started his heretic revolution. It was inhabited for a couple decades at most and after Akhenaten died, uh, King Tut, Tutankhamen, moved the capital back down to Luxor uh and modern day thebes so uh amarna or akhetaten is what we call the one period site and in archaeology we love it because when you go and dig there there's nothing on top of it there's nothing that you have to um you know dig through so it's just right there the problem is it was um pretty much demolished after akhetaten left and part of as a reaction or you know reaction against his revolution but even so, there was enough there that after this peasant woman found some of these uh, tablets, the archaeologists went in and began excavating. Well, we've also translated, of course, all of these uh, texts. And as I say, they turn out to be correspondence, either uh, royal correspondence for the most part or correspondence to the lesser kings. But we can actually read the details. Uh, they they start out with um, uh, frequently um, almost ritual openings uh, from Amenhotep to Bernabariyash, king of Babylon, thus says Amenhotep. And, of course, we have to realize that they say thus says and say to because most of the kings themselves at the time couldn't read or write. They're using scribes. And so it's basically one scribe writing to another, saying, "My guy says this. Read this out loud and say it to your guy." And in <laughs> fact, on on some of the letters, we have um, handwritten notes from one scribe to another underneath the official letter because the kings themselves wouldn't have, you know, known it. so I I tell my story, my students, it's like one guy says, "Hey Joe, how's the family? Um, I hope you have." No problem. Reading the above, you know, take care of Tom, Uh, and so we have these little things between the scribes as well. But the the actual uh, Amarna letters are fascinating to look at, and that's why, in part, I said earlier that we're able to determine that the late Bronze Age is a small world through social network analysis, and this is what uh, my wife does. Diane Kleins is a specialist in this. It's a a uh, fairly new uh, technique to use. And so she um, uh, looked at all the Amarna letters uh, uh, with me, and we, we put together something that was able to show that this is a small world. And it's very interesting looking at the different dynamics and interactions between the kings that are equal, the ones that call them, you know, my, my brother, and the the vassal kings who are, are completely uh, different, so we get um, almost a two-tier level of uh, interactions at this point, and so um, they're a lot of fun to read uh, because, uh, again, um, things weren't so different back then as they, you know, from what they are today. It's actually quite similar in some ways. Well,
1: that's uh, that's pretty much my my, my next question. It, it's. You've read you've read all of the uh, this royal correspondence. It's three thousand plus years old. Uh, can do you have does it give us an insight as to uh, what human thought human human nature personality, even the human condition? Uh, what was it like back then? And do you have any insights as to how we have evolved or or how much we've changed in all of that time?
0: uh interesting question and and yes, I've read all of them numerous times, mostly in in English, of course, and in fact um there are uh books out there if anybody wants to to go through them, probably the best is by a guy named william Moran, m o r a n uh, which is simply called the Amarna letters, but you know be aware you're you're going to be reading these uh, unabridged uh, letters with the footnotes talking about what the Akkadian actually says. Uh, and that's where it gets interesting, actually, because these letters are not written in Egyptian. Um, at the time, the the diplomatic lingua franca, the common diplomatic language, uh, as it were, was um, something we call Akkadian, which uh, is you know used in Mesopotamia. Obviously, the the Akkadians using Babylonians. But if you're Egyptian and you're reading and writing, you're able to do it in, in Egyptian and in Akkadian. If you're Hittite, you're going to read and write in Hittite and Akkadian. If you're you know Canaanite, you're going to do Canaanite and Akkadian. So these are all written in Akkadian. And those that's actually one of the two ancient languages that I was studying in graduate school, ancient Greek uh, and uh, ancient Akkadian. So uh, I'm, I was uh, able to read these in the original. In fact, I had one class specifically on Amarna Akkadian when I was in, in graduate school. Uh, and so it's lots of fun to be able to read them uh, in, in the original. I don't uh, imagine that absolutely everybody listening has that at their fingertips. Um, uh, if, you, if you do, go, by all means, go ahead and read the original. Otherwise... This book by Moran is um, uh, very interesting uh, to take a look at. And what it shows you is that really things haven't changed all that much Uh, in terms of human nature and human thought and the human condition. You know, the same things that drive us today are the things that drove them back then, power, ambition, career. Um, they're, They're suffering from the same things that we suffer from. Uh, illness, you know, they had toothaches, they they had what we would now realize is cancer, they had abscesses, you know, all the medical conditions, and in fact they the Kings send doctors, physicians, around. They say, I'm sending you my personal doctor, I've heard that you're sick, um, but they also get upset. They're they asked how they're feeling. Uh, we have one letter that specifically says, I have been recently sick and you didn't inquire why I wasn't feeling well. Um, do you live so far away that you might not have known I was sick? And then it's kind of like, oh, wait, your messenger tells me that you are actually living very far away. How far away are you? <laughs> and then um, we've got others um, where they're talking about uh, diplomatic gifts and trade uh, and well uh, A common refrain, uh, especially in the letters written to the Egyptian king, uh, is uh, gold Gold is like dust in your land. You won't even miss it if you send me some. So send me some right now, as much as you can, and then I'll be happy. Uh, And and then, you know, in other letters, they say, you know, um, I, I don't really need anything, but I'm sending you this as a gesture of friendship and... If you happen to have something that's, you know, gold or silver or ivory or horses uh, that you could spare, I could use those. And You know, so it's kind of like today when you have a, a birthday or, or Hanukkah or Christmas or something where you're going to receive gifts and somebody says, what do you want? And, and you say, no, I don't need anything, I'm good, I'm fine. But, but if you happen to, you know, I need a new watch or I could use a new car or I need a sweater – You know, this is what we call gift-giving. We do it today, even if we don't realize it on those occasions. And that's what they're doing back then, is they're doing gift-giving. And it was expected that if you asked a favor, it would be accompanied by the giving of a gift. Now, you know, it could sometimes go over the line. I mean, in one particular one, uh, one letter... Uh, a king writing to the Egyptian pharaoh says, specifically, if you send me gold, I will send you my daughter. I mean, it just comes right out and says that. You send me gold, I'll send you my daughter. And to his credit, the Egyptian pharaoh writes back and says, what kind of man are you that you would give away your daughter for a few nuggets of gold? You know, he chastises him. And then it turns out that he sends the gold anyway, and, and marries the daughter. So, <laughs> <laughs> so like I say, you know, there's nothing new under the sun; everything is the same. And that is what I find so interesting uh, about reading these letters.
1: Quite a bit of the of the book does talk about the the, the high level trade and the and the gold go, going from Egypt to to everyone else, and and. Uh, all of those fascinating stories but, but the, 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 the question that I had uh, coming from that was 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 how did the Egyptians establish and, and, and maintain a balance of, of trade I mean how did they prevent from, from getting ripped off I mean how uh, the, the book talks about how the, the Egyptians would send stuff and and then and and then other kings would complain about the quality of, of the gold that was arriving how how did they how did they how did they manage this um how did they keep these relationships <laughs> going in it with, with over such vast distances and and everyone's traveling by by camel and by ship and it, it was it's it's just a, it's just a fascinating picture I, I know that that question's a mess but but uh the entire thing is so fascinating i'm sorry but uh talk about the uh, the, the balance of trade in the eastern Aegean and, and and how did they keep it balanced and fair to all uh, to all the parties?
0: right well it's always you know tough to keep things fair and balanced and as we see today uh, and they had uh, problems back then as well, especially as you point out if this these things are traveling long distances uh, the geography enters into it. Uh, they're mostly using uh, donkey caravans, actually, at this time. Uh, but some is going by ship as well. And, of course, some uh, you know goes uh, just by foot with somebody carrying it. Um, we have messengers going back and forth. They're frequently detained for several years at a time at the foreign courts. Um, uh, maybe almost as hostages, but you know that's one way to, to make sure you're getting trade still continuing at the level, as if you're uh, almost exchanging people at the same time. But we we do have this uh, a problem. How do you how do you maintain fair and balanced trade in a time when you're basically still in a barter economy? I mean, bear in mind they don't have coins yet. In fact, coins aren't invented till about 700 B.C., which is you know, seven centuries later from where we are at this point. Um, and so one of the, the ways that, that they do it is, um, well, anthropologists call it silent trade or, or gift-giving. Silent trade usually is when two groups aren't speaking, one group will leave a group of things in a clearing and then back away, and the other group will come out and they'll look, and if they want it, they'll leave, you know, next to it um, what they think is the equivalent, and then they'll retreat. The first group comes back, and if they like it, like if there's enough bananas for the iron that they've left, they'll take the bananas and retreat, and the second group comes back out and takes the iron. If they don't like it, they'll retreat, and that other group comes back and adds to it, you know. And so it's silent trade. You don't actually have to talk to each other. Well, we've got something like that going on but we've got added to it uh... gift-giving and gift exchange like i was talking about earlier like birthdays Hanukkah, christmas things like that but um... also bear in mind that people are able to complain so they say things like in my last letter i sent you as a gift uh, five pairs of horses and two chariots and uh, in exchange all i got was uh... you know a couple of lapis lazuli beads, that's not hardly worth it, I, I, you know, can you make it better next time? And so they call each other out, but they also treat each other as family. A lot of these Amarna letters, for example, as I mentioned, the kings call each other my brother, or they say my father, or my son, which are terms of respect, but they're also terms of, you know, of relatedness. And the thing is, again, in these um, pre-monetary societies, you frequently make up family relationships where none exists. And anthropologists have documented this. So, for example, I think any you know any number of us have somebody that we refer to as you know aunt Co- and you know Aunt Matilda or Uncle Jack when they're not actually related to us. They're just longtime family friends. We've got things like that going on, and so that way. Uh, when you keep it in the family, as it were, you can call each other out. And so, for example, you referred to some problems the Egyptians had with their gold. And we do see this in the letters. There's a couple of uh, uh, letters sent in particular by uh, Babylonian kings that say, when the gold that you sent got here and we put it in the fire to melt it, uh, what emerged didn't look like gold at all. It looked like, it looked like ashes. It looked like silver. It, you know, um, to which I, I would ask, well, wait a minute. If you're getting gold, why is the first thing you do put it in the kiln to melt? You know, <laughs> obviously they didn't trust them. Um, but the Egyptians, in, in, who are probably um, not dealing on the up and up, maybe they are trying to get rid of you know lesser quality stuff. Yeah. But they say, oh, 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 we're so sorry. You know, we don't have control over it once it leaves our lands and we suspect that somebody swapped it out uh, before it got to you. So what left us here was pure gold, but what might have arrived to you was not. So let's blame the (laughs) middlemen, which is a good way to save face. I think you'll agree. Uh, But the response is, well, in that case, why not put it in a sealed container with a trusted messenger and, you know, stamp it so that it's closed? And when it comes to our end, we'll open it with the seal unbroken, you know, and then then we're talking okay. So, you know, they're all trying to keep it fair and balanced, as you put it. Um, but there are, you know, problems en route, especially when these things are traveling hundreds, if not thousands, of miles. But to their credit, for the most part, they managed to make it work. Uh, And we've got this thriving economy, which in part, at least in Egypt, um, is working with dowries and bride prices and and things like that to to keep the economy going. But for the most part, it it worked. Um, And, you know, the palaces are trying not to get ripped off, they are trying to maintain a balance of trade, uh, and bear in mind also that what we see them mentioning is mostly luxury goods, and, and we find a lot of those. But they're not just trading luxury goods. That's the tip of the iceberg. They're also trading things that are perishable and are long gone. You know, uh, But even if you look at some of the precious stuff, the gold, the silver. Um, it's all made into other objects once it gets to the other side. And so that's kind of perished as well. But we have to imagine that they are, you know, at all levels of economy trading. And we're just seeing a part of this, both in the written text and in the actual archaeological record. Because I frankly doubt we've got more than about, say, 10% uh, uh, of what was once there that is still around, even for us to uncover and then it depends on where we are excavating as to whether we actually find it or not so i think that they're doing very very well back then and i think that given the distances and the time involved it's amazing it worked as well as it did but i also come back to uh, that there's nothing new under the sun that that you know just like today we see in these records the diplomatic embassies and the economic embargoes and various people complaining, and, you know, things like that. You know, and some, we're not that far different from them, even though they were, you know, almost 4,000 years ago in the past.
1: But it all comes to an ugly end in the 12th century. Um, Tell us about the, the final act in all of this.
0: Well, the final act, as you just put it, is that everything does come to an end, uh, everything um, is destroyed. All of the good and bad things I've just dis- uh, described come to a, a crashing halt within a period of about 50 years. Certainly within 100 years at most, everything uh, just ends. Um, we've got uh, 1177 as the uh, the year that I point to, But I admit, you know, in the book that that's just a um, shorthand, shall we say, academic shorthand. That, um, you know, it's going to take about 100 years for everything to completely come to an end. But, you know, the same thing happens when the Roman Empire collapses. Uh, Most people point to the year 476 A.D. and say that's when Rome fell. But actually, that's not when Rome fell. It took most of the 5th century A.D., for Rome to fall, but 476 is shorthand. And so we've got the same thing here that 1177 BC is shorthand for the collapse of the Late Bronze Age. And so what I do in, I think it's chapter 4, I go through the 12th century and um, basically describe what happens site by site. I you know talk about Mycenae and the evidence for it being destroyed Um, uh, Knossos, Lachish, Magneto, Troy, all of these. So I go through the century much as I went through the the 13th century and the 14th and and the 15th century in the preceding chapters. But I spell out just exactly what happened. So by the time we get to the next chapter where I go through the various possibilities for why this all happened in Chapter 5, the reader is completely up-to-date and fully informed. That is, they know, my my aim for this was that by the end of Chapter 4, the reader that was keeping track of things would have as many facts and as much knowledge as anybody else in the world today Um, a practicing archaeologist, an ancient historian, or an armchair person just reading this in the comfort of their own home, they are in command of as many facts and are therefore in a position to critique the hypotheses that are then going to be put forward in Chapter 5, the next chapter.
1: We're talking, when you laid this out, you get a picture of annihilation, complete destruction, Your entire cities, uh, entire civilizations, uh, roads being destroyed, almost fields being salted. We're, we're talking, for lack of a better ter- term, we're talking real biblical stuff here, and, and it happened to everybody. Um, it, it, that, that was the shocking thing that that uh, I, I just I just could not get over the the the, the breadth and the depth of, of of the devastation that occurred uh, to to the entire Eastern Aegean. It, it was really amazing to me. The root causes. Of 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 such a thing, you, you've touched on it early on about how it, a, a, a perfect storm, volcanoes and earthquakes and droughts and um, you, you really uh, again you touch upon all of those. Do you really do do you really think that 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 just the permit that they they this everyone just roll the dice and. And 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 the Eastern Aegean came up craps, and everything went bad at the same time. Um, do do you think that the, in in your estimation, that this the, this civilization and and all of the the trade that was occurring between all of these civilizations, they were they were so strong that it would take such a a multi dynamic disaster to, to to take them out in such a short amount of time.
0: Yeah, I, I absolutely would. I um, mentioned earlier that I didn't think any one of the causes that are usually suggested well, were not enough on their own. And I, I explain that in the book, and I, do, I still stand by that for sure, that, you know, if, if a root cause is an invasion, uh, that's fine, but you usually have people that survive an invasion, uh, and usually you can rebuild after that. Same thing with an earthquake, same thing with famine, drought you know any of these things if they happen by themselves you can, they're usually survivors and usually the civilization picks up and limps along and then gets back into the game as it were but um, what if you do have a, a perfect storm and you do have a number of these things uh, happen uh, and and some of them may lead to the others I mean what if what if you do have a drought, and that leads to famine, and that leads to um, migrating people who then invade others. You know, and that's frequently the very simple explanation that people put for this, that, you know, the Sea Peoples, for example, are affected by drought, uh, and therefore they start moving, and that's why they invade other people. But um, I I don't think that famine or drought are enough uh, of a driver, enough of a stress. So what if you do toss earthquakes into the mix? And we know that there are a series of earthquakes that take place over about a 50-year period in this region from about 1225 to 1175. So, you know, what if in addition to the famine and drought, you have earthquakes? Uh, And what if in addition to that, some of the palaces start toppling over? And what if... During the uh, migrations and invasions, some of these long-distance trade routes are cut. You know, then what? And I actually think that now we're getting to something because um, Cyprus, for example, is providing most of the copper. Uh, that's you know where the name comes from, Kypros. And uh, Egypt is producing and providing the gold. The tin is really only coming at that time from Afghanistan, uh, as is lapis lazuli. So, if you cut any of these trade routes that are, you know, hundreds if not thousands of miles long, and suddenly in Greece you're no longer getting gold or copper or tin, you know, and you can't make bronze anymore because that's 90% copper and 10% tin, and if you can't have gold to, you know, make things or pay your people, now you're talking about being in trouble. So I, I don't think there is any one root cause, I think there are a number. But I also think we have to figure out a couple of other things. One, that there's probably a domino effect that if, you know, the Mycenaeans start to topple and go down, that's going to affect the Hittites. That's going to affect the Cypriots. That will affect the Canaanites. And so you do have a a domino effect. You've also got uh, an amplifying effect. That is, again, if you just had famine, that's, you know, that's not good but you could survive it but if you toss an earthquake in that amplifies the problems that you've got and in the end what you come down to is a systems collapse where literally the whole system collapses your centralized bureaucracy goes away, your centralized economy goes away the top 1% go away, you're left with just you know illiterate peasants and so on and then you've got uh, you know, it's like complexity theory where you toss one thing into the mix and your whole nicely ticking complex system gets thrown for a loop. And I think that that's really what you've got going here, is there is no one cause because if there had been just one, they would have survived it. They had survived those things innumerable times in the three and 400 years previously, but having multiple causes, the results of the systems collapsed, that there's no way anybody could have survived that. Uh, I don't think they knew what hit them. I don't think that they really knew what was coming. But I also think that even had they known, they couldn't have made adequate preparations. I think once this started, it was uh, inevitable.
1: Who were the? What, what's your best guess as to the identity of the of the Sea Peoples? Um, one gets the impression that the Egyptians didn't know them.
0: Uh, excellent question. I don't think the Egyptians did know them per se before uh, about the year twelve oh seven. That would be about thirty years before you know the title of the year of my book eleven seventy seven. But the Sea Peoples per se actually come through not once but twice, 30 years apart. And the first time they come through is in 1207. It's during the reign of Merneptah, and he talks about them. And, in fact, some of the groups that come through in 1177 also came through 30 years earlier in 1207. But what we got, if we add them together with the two waves, we've got about nine different groups. And the Egyptians do tell us the names of them. They say They're the the Denyan, they're the Poleset, they're the Ekwesh, they're the Weshesh, uh, they're the Shardana, they are the Shekelash. You know, they actually tell us the names. Some of them were actually familiar to them. Like the, the Shardana were mercenaries that had been fighting on both sides. They had been fighting for the Egyptians and against the Egyptians in things like the Battle of Kadesh that happened back in about 1279 B.C., so 100 years before all this mess. But others do seem to be new to them. They don't seem to know where they come from. Uh, They simply say they are from the islands. They are from the north. But, you know, if you're in Egypt and people are coming uh, down to you, then by, you know, they're coming from the north. And they're mostly coming from the islands if they're off in the region of Greece and Crete and Sicily and Sardinia. So, you know, they knew they were from the islands, they knew they were from the north, but that was all they knew. And so, we've had a a guessing game uh, since the, really the 18th century or the 19th century. Um, I mentioned that Gaston Maspero in the 1800s had already formulated the Sea People's Hypothesis. Um, but they were already trying to guess who they were. It hasn't been that successful. Uh, what people usually do is try and look at geographic names and link them. So, for example, if you look at one of the groups, the Shardana, uh and then look at Sardinia, people have said, well, look, those names are almost the same. And sure enough, at least the consonants are the same. So they said, well, maybe the Shardana are from Sardinia. And the Shekeles, that sounds like Sicily, so maybe they're coming from Sicily. And so a lot of people have suggested the Sea Peoples are coming from what we would consider the western Mediterranean, and they're moving across to the eastern Mediterranean, to Israel, Syria, Lebanon, and, and Egypt. But as I say, this is just a guessing game, and it's possible, some have suggested they actually went the other way, and that after the Egyptians beat the sea peoples, as they do both times, that maybe they went to the western Mediterranean and gave their name to what becomes Sardinia and Sicily. Now, I don't think that's the case, because Ramses III, he says when he defeats them, he settles them in his strongholds in Egypt, Uh, and there's a site called Dor in modern-day Israel that is mentioned as a a sickle town, a shekelash town. So I think they are coming from the western Mediterranean and heading towards the, towards the east. But, you know, uh, even though others have suggested that maybe the Denyan are Homer's Danaans or the Equish are Homer's Achaeans, that is, the Mycenaeans, we can't prove that. The, the only one that people are pretty confident with is a group called the, the Paleset. The Egyptians talk about the Peleset. And even uh, Champollion, the guy that deciphered Egyptian hieroglyphics, Jean-Francois jean uh, he f- deciphered them by 1823 because of the Rosetta Stone. He already was suggesting, a little bit later, that the Peleset were the Philistines that we know from the Bible. And that does seem to be the one equation that, that, that has held up. So we may know one of the groups, but again, even that is really just a guess. But Philistine material has been found in modern day Israel, and it looks kind of like Mycenaean stuff from Greece, but made with local clay in, uh, in either Israel or Cyprus or Rhodes. So it does look like you've got, you know, Mycenaeans moving over to the Eastern Mediterranean after their own civilization has collapsed, and then making their usual pottery but using local materials. And that's what we call Philistine, which would be the Peleset. So the upshot is that we think they are invading, migrating hordes from the western Mediterranean, but we don't know for sure. And in fact, what I would say is that the nine groups that the Egyptians mention as what we call the Sea Peoples are actually um, consisting of groups that have joined in like, perhaps as the Mycenaeans went down, some Mycenaeans joined these sea peoples. And as the Hittites went down, some Hittites joined in. And so the what we see washing up on the shores of Egypt may be very different from the original group that set out from Sicily or Sardinia decades earlier. So the upshot is the Egyptians didn't really know them, and we still don't really know them either. It's a mystery. Um, Some readers of my book have complained that I didn't go into more detail about the Sea Peoples. Well, (laughs) I'm sorry. There is no more detail to go into. You know what I know. This is it. That's why it's still a mystery, and I think that's why it's still fascinating. You know, if I could ever solve the question of who are the Sea Peoples, I'd do it in a heartbeat. But for now, it's one of the mysteries of ancient history
1: <laughs> what a fascinating subject and 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 what an incredible book um, it there, there's so many more questions that uh, that I have um, we, we could just go on and on and on um, but let, let's um let's change course here and 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 let's just have some fun here for a little bit we've we've been going for uh, for over an hour uh, let, let's uh, let's change course here um, Uh, let's try this. So say a billionaire, a billionaire philanthropist is, here's this interview and and he contacts you and with a proposal, he's willing to give you a million dollars with one mandate a year from now. You tell me three new exciting things about the late bronze age and, and the collapse or just tell me more flesh out, uh, more about uh, what happened in, in the book 1177 BC. Do you take the money? And and, and if so, uh, what kinds of projects do you
0: pursue? <laughs> well, of course they take the money. <laughs> <laughs> That's a no-brainer. Of course they take the money. Sure. <laughs> and in fact, the, the problem is it's going to be limiting the number of projects that, that I would want to pursue. Um, uh, First and foremost, you know, I was just talking about the Sea Peoples and the fact that we don't know where they come from. Well, I think that would be one of the first things that I would want to do is try and go locate the origins of the Sea Peoples if that's if that's at all possible. You know, there hasn't been a single ancient site that we can point to so far where we can say that's where the Sea Peoples came from. Right? I would want to go, and it would involve, you know, probably uh, trekking over the landscape and then maybe digging and Any number of places, Sicily, Sardinia, Western Italy, um, maybe in the eastern Mediterranean if we wanted to test that hypothesis. But um, I would basically ask the question, who are the Sea Peoples and where do they come from and why don't we have any more information? And that would be my number one project, just to solve the question of who are the Sea Peoples. Because I think in doing so, we will also get a lot more answers about the late Bronze Age collapse. Uh, the other thing that I would do, though, is um, a bit more science. Uh, I, would, I would take that million dollars and do some of the exact sciences, like uh, radiocarbon dating and pollen analysis and things like that. And, in fact, in the last decade, I mean, I haven't even mentioned this so far in this interview, but uh, there have been enormous strides made just in the last five years, ten years at the most, by people doing these exact sciences, by people doing pollen analysis, um, uh, David Kanyewski and his team uh, out of uh, France and um, Daphne Landwitt in Israel, Finkelstein and Thomas Litt in Israel uh, and others, the, they've been doing cores at ancient sites where you actually take a core of earth and then you look at the pollen year by year or decade by decade And they've already been able to say that, you know, you guys have been thinking since, like, the 1960s that maybe there was a drought. Well, guess what? There was, and we can show it. The pollen shows that there is a dry period and that you're getting, you know, plants more used to arid conditions and that that drought lasted in some areas from about 1200 down to 900 B.C. And in Israel, for example, pouring from the Sea of Galilee, Uh, And the Dead Sea shows that the the drought lasted um, only down to about, uh, you know, 1,100 or so B.C. So where we had always had these hypotheses, the exact sciences are now telling us what we've actually got. Same thing with radiocarbon dating. Uh, You know, we can now date things much more specifically and say, well, we have a destruction here. With burnt wood, we can date the wood and, you know, when does it date to? So now we can say, yes, this really is from this particular time period. So I would use part of that million dollars to do basically more hard science um, and and really try and figure out if a site is destroyed, is it in this time period? Uh, and um, what's going on at this time? Can we determine if it's by an earthquake or by invaders or by internal rebellion? You know, and, and as I said, exactly when does it date to? So I think we're in a new era at this point where we can apply the hard sciences more than they have been in the past. So in addition to just digging, we can now use the money to interpret. The problem is all of that is extremely expensive. Uh, it it costs, you know, uh, something like fifty to a hundred dollars per radiocarbon sample um, and DNA analysis. Oh my! If we can find more skeletons and do DNA analysis on that, wouldn't that be absolutely wonderful to try and compare it to modern populations? But again, that's extremely expensive here with the uh, the laboratory and the the personnel. So. Um, Basically, uh, the w- what I would say to the billionaire is, thank you very much, and, and can I have more than a million? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes. When you were talking about uh, trying to find the uh, the origin of of the sea peoples, um, what about uh, when I was reading the book? I, I I kept thinking about it over and over again. Um, what about in the in the far western Mediterranean, the Iberian Peninsula, Peninsula uh, Tartessos? Uh, was anything going on that early, uh, so so that there's a potential that that they could have gone from from that far over? Uh,
0: yeah, it's it's certainly possible, and there's been some work done, and there have been um, Mycenaean shirts, sure, Mycenaean pottery found. Uh, all the way, you know, in Spain, and uh, they may, and I said may, even have been going up to uh, uh, England to investigate the tin that's up in Cornwall. There's been some articles published over the decades about that. Uh, we've got Baltic amber being used uh, down in the, in the Aegean at this time. So, yeah, I would say that um, there would be certainly no harm in looking that far west and that um, certainly our globalized economy, as I put it, may have been extending even further uh, than we think, but uh, it, it's certainly uh, worth a look. There are already people investigating that, but uh love to see e- even more people uh, looking at it.
1: You go into a uh, secondhand store, you buy an antique bottle and, and you just accidentally rub it, a genie appears. Genie gives you three, he makes you this proposition that, that, that uh, he'll give you three unknown tablets from the Armana archives. You get to choose the topic of, of the tablets. What, what would you choose if you could read three unknown tablets from those archives?
0: Oh, that's easy. Absolutely easy. Because there is one group that is missing from the Armana archives. We have Hittites mentioned We have Assyrians, Babylonians, Cypriots, Canaanites, no Mycenaeans, no Minoans. There isn't a single letter that we have left to us that is sent or from anybody in the Aegean. No Mycenaeans, no Minoans. And to me, that is very strange. I I do not understand it uh, from my reading of the archaeological evidence and the textual evidence, including the so-called Aegean list in Amenhotep's temple, which mentions Mycenae and Knossos, there should be letters in the Amarna Archives, both to and from the Aegean. Mm -hmm. So, I would be greedy, and I would ask for all three to be letters to and from the Aegean, uh, and and just see exactly what's going on. Uh, If I weren't quite that greedy, I would say two from the Aegean, maybe, and one from Assyria, because we only have currently one letter from the king of Assyria, uh, and uh, there's definitely more going on there. But uh, again, bear in mind that this archive was originally found by this peasant woman, and was almost immediately distributed to museums around the world. And we do have stories of some of the tablets, Being accidentally destroyed, or at least that's how the rumors and gossip go. Uh, I heard one story of a uh, middleman accidentally dropping a very large Mm. tablet when he was at the train station in Cairo, Mm. you know, and it shattered and they just threw the bits away because it's, you know, just clay at that point. Well, what if that was the one letter from the king of Mycenae? I'm like, ah! You know, and what if there are more that are either at Amarna or. Um, since these are probably just the ones that were left behind, what if there's more letters down in, in Luxor, in Thebes, at the palaces down there? So, you know, it's not inconceivable that we would come up with more of the Amarna archive. But again, I come back to I want my Mycenaeans and Minoans to be in the Amarna archive. I, I can't understand why they're not. And so those would be my first choice. Uh, if a genie appeared, and I was able to ask him very politely for <laughs> these.
1: you you mentioned a time machine uh very early on if uh, if if you if if you got kidnapped and thrown into a time machine and taken back to the trojan war would would you be team uh, Achilles or would you be on team hector
0: um oh for sure i 'd be team Achilles. Totally. I mean, I like the Trojans. They, you know, they're fun. They're nice. They they, they do interesting stuff. But um, I I started out my career studying the Mycenaeans. And so I've always been partial to them. And, uh, you know, reading Homer and and reading and doing all the archaeology, you know, if I were back then, absolutely, I'd be on the Achilles side that doesn't mean I would like them all. I think Odysseus would be fascinating to talk to. I'm not sure I'm impressed with Menelaus, um, mm-hmm. but um, uh, Agamemnon—wow—he would be somebody to be uh, talking to. I'd probably be quaking my boots the whole time I was talking with <laughs> him, you know. But uh, boy, would it be fascinating! So <laughs> I, I'm gonna I'm gonna choose Team Achilles over over Team Hector, but you know. If I may borrow that, actually, I'm going to be teaching a seminar for freshmen in the fall, starting in three weeks, on Troy and the Trojan War. So uh, I may actually, if I may, borrow that question and ask them if they would rather be Team Achilles or Team Hector. <laughs> well, well, it, this has been fascinating.
1: What, what, what's next? What, what's next for, for Eric Klein? What, what, what do you got in the... Uh, in, in the calendar here in the, in, uh, the next few years. Are you, gonna, are you going to uh, give a second edition to 1177, or are you going to move on? Uh, what do you have out in the field? Uh, just let, let us know. Okay, well, I've got a, a,
0: a lot going on, uh, as you might imagine. Um, first, as you mentioned at the top of the interview, uh, the paperback version of 1177 B.C. is coming out in late September, and I added a, a new afterword to it. So even if you've already got the book, you may want to uh, get it again and, and read the afterward. And I've got kids to put through college so I wouldn't mind if you did that. But um, beyond that, let's see. I've got um, two books that I'm working on, uh, both for Princeton, the same people that put out 1177 BC. Uh, one is a book on Megiddo, uh, the archaeology and history of Megiddo, uh, and the archaeologists that dug it up. It's called uh, Digging Up Armageddon. And I actually just got a a grant from the uh, National Endowment for the Humanities to help me write that. I got one of their new public scholar grants, and that's specifically for uh, specialists to bring uh, their work to the general public. So I really enjoy doing that, and so I'll be doing that for Megiddo. I'm also writing uh, another book called, uh, let's see, the tentative title is Three Stones Make a Wall. It's the story of archaeology, Um, very much like C.W. Saram's Gods, Graves, and Scholars. I want to put out something like that, where I basically talk about archaeology, uh, some of the greatest sites, uh, but also about how to do it, uh, drawing on my 30 years of experience in the field, uh, both digging and surveying. And the title actually comes from a, a saying that we've got when I'm teaching my students, that when you're digging, that if you find rocks or stones, uh, don't always just throw them away. They, they maybe are something. Uh, so I say, you know, one, one stone is a stone. Uh, one stone is a feature, meaning you don't quite know what it is, but it's a something, and you might not be able to move it. Three stones makes a wall. You've got something. Three stones in a, in a row makes a wall. Four stones is a palace or, or, or a building. Uh, five stones is a palace or a building that's built by aliens. You know, And we, we go from there. So, so I've got the book on Megiddo. I've got the book on archaeology, which I would love to come out as kind of a you know, mass market paperback and everybody carries it in their back pocket. Um, I'm also doing um, a course at the moment for the teaching company. Uh, also, the an intro to archaeology course, very similar uh, to what I'm writing for, for Princeton. Uh, and then uh, the the field excavations. I've been associated with Megiddo for 20 years, and I've also been associated with Tel Qadri up in the north for the last decade. Uh, that's a Canaanite palace from about 1700 BC. And the last two seasons, 2013 and 2015, we found the oldest and largest wine cellar from the ancient Near East, Uh, Wine is kind of an earthy flavor to it these days, I'm afraid. Uh, There's no wine left, but we've got organic residue that tells us that wine was once in the jars. And we have the equivalent, we've got about 120 jars that are all about uh, two to three feet tall that would have held uh, the equivalent of, gosh, about 16,000 liters probably, if it's all wine, uh, which would be... You know, just thousands and thousands of bottles of wine in, in our terminology, uh, and so we're digging the storerooms of these palace of this palace now, and getting an insight into Canaanite economy. So, actually, if your billionaire wanted to part with more money, I would ask for for money to keep going for the excavations at Tel Kabri, which right now are running every other summer, but. Uh, there's so much we could go, do there that it would be you know, nice to be able to go every summer and go from there. So uh, I've got a, a, a lot going on, right? You know, two books, a teaching course, uh, a couple of digs, uh, and I'm also editing Base Order, which is the uh, flagship journal of the American Schools of Oriental Research, which is um, our primary journal for publishing the results of our, our excavations. I'm doing that with... Uh, my co-editor Chris Ralston. So working with Chris on the journal, working with the Saps Sorlando uh, at Cavry, working with Israel Finkelstein at Megiddo, um, the future for me looks very exciting. I, you know, I can't wait. I, I'm juggling lots of balls in the air, but it's all fun. It's all good. I love what I'm doing, and uh, you know, I'm so grateful to my family to be uh, allowing me to continue to do this Um, But uh, in terms of the listeners, I would say look out for a number of things coming out, starting with the new edition or the the paperback of 1177 to all these other projects. At some point, I will come back and revise 1177, but that probably won't be for another five years or more because, um, you know, we've got new science coming up all the time, and we need time to let uh, this percolate to the surface. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, it has been a pleasure, Eric. Um, thank you for joining us uh, at the New Books Network. Um, uh, it, this is a, a book that I think that that everybody should be reading. I think it's relevant today, and and uh, it, it's a book that, uh, as I said uh, to begin with, it's it's no exaggeration. I uh, I, I read the book over several nights, uh, sat it down for a night, and immediately picked it up and. And read it again. I, I, I read it twice. It's uh, it's worth that, and and uh, I, I hope that we can at some point in time uh, come up with a, a billionaire ph- uh, philanthropist to, uh, uh, to to fund more of this, and and uh, so that we can um, uh, see eleven seventy seven B C in its fifth or sixth or seventh printing. I, I think that would be utterly fascinating.
0: well I'm all for that I hope so but it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and uh, I I look forward to doing so again in the future
1: well thank you very much and, and thank you for joining us